So today is, I said, Reformation Sunday here at Corner Canyon Church. We celebrate the great biblical truths of the Reformation. They're terrific. The Reformation was a tremendous time in the history of the church. It was the 16th century, and that's where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg uh, Castle, and um, that, that movement helped the church more closely hold to the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Alone, uh, for the glory of God alone, by Scripture alone. And as, and as evidence that we are big fans of the Reformation, you just got to look up on our steeple, right? Our steeple has the, the truths of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, and Christ alone. Uh, and so the meaning behind grace alone is that we are saved by grace alone, not by human effort or striving, but by God's grace and mercy. And what you'll notice, and I, this is intentional on my part, is that when you're driving by on the street here, you notice that grace alone is facing out so everybody can see it, because I want people to know that this is where you want to come to get grace, to get God's mercy. Uh, I said jokingly to the elders when we were first putting it up, I said, I want lights on it all night long so if somebody hits rock bottom at 2 a.m. in the morning, they're driving home because usually you're driving home at 2 a.m. when you hit rock bottom, right? Typically, let's be honest, okay? You know, driving home one or two, they can see grace alone and say, oh man, my life's falling apart. I guess I'll go to church tomorrow, grace alone. You know, I was hoping for that. So, you, you know, that's why the grace is facing towards so everybody can see it so they know that they come to this church, they're going to hear the gospel, they're going to get grace and we all need it, trust me. Faith alone is the idea that faith is the only thing that receives the mercy, uh, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation in Christ. Christ alone is that Christ is the only basis for our salvation. We are counted righteous in Christ alone. Scripture alone is that Scripture and Scripture alone is the only infallible rule for the church for faith and practice. Infallible rule. And these are very important truths that we live by as Christians. Uh, but one of the things that people point out to me, people that are kind of in, you know, history buffs and Reformation nerds, whatever it is, they'll say, you know, they kind of like, come with me. actually, Nate, you know, they'll do that kind of thing. You're missing one of the Reformation truths on the steeple. You're missing sola de la gloria, which is to say, glory to God alone. They always point that out. And even here, we have three of them in here. We used to have another one there. But I mean... We don't, we don't have that. And it's, it's, it's much longer to put than the other solas. That's one of the reasons. But it's a very important sola because that sola, sola de la gloria, or de gloria God alone, that sola is the sola that holds up all the other solas because all the other alones, if you like, they, they all magnify and glorify and honor God maximally. So we live by glory of God alone. We're supposed to live that way for the glory of God in Christ alone. He is our ultimate purpose, our ultimate reason for everything that we do. And since we don't have that truth on our steeple, people that drive by and see, then I'm saying it's a pretty important one, so we've got to go over this. We've got to go over it, and it happens to fit very well, as I say, with our verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of Romans. And uh, it does matter how we view and how we perceive, how we understand God. How do we view Him? And that affects how we glorify Him. Uh, for example, if you thought God was like an animal, like a cow or a rat or whatever, or a statue, some weird statue or an idol, then you would undermine the glory of God by your view of God. If you thought God, you know, was this podium, for instance, or something bizarre like that, that would undermine the glory of God because we realize that podiums, animals, statues, all of those things, we, we realize we as human beings are more, more valuable than those things. We do realize that. And so we, we have to understand how to view God because how we view God affects how we honor and glorify Him. I think we know this intuitively. 
And I say this because there are people who tend to view God a lot like a man, but more powerful, more morally upright. Kind of like a demigod, kind of like Thor from the Avengers, the Marvel movies. And some people base this misunderstanding of God, kind of this guy in the sky kind of thing, uh, from the Sistine Chapel uh, a ceiling and a, a particular part of that ceiling called the creation of Adam. Who knows what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. A few of you. But let me, trust me, you've seen it. You've definitely seen it. It's that picture where you got God and you got man, they're kind of touching fingers, right? That old thing. You know, and the God, of course, God's this old white guy. He's got a beard, right? And, you know, and so that's where a lot of people get this misunderstanding. The Christians believe this, God's some old guy in the clouds with a beard. He's a father up in the clouds or he's a sky granddaddy, as I like to call it for short. And you see this misunderstanding in, in, in culture. It's not like I just made this up. This is a, a, a popular culture misunderstanding. It's fundamental. This is what the great musician John Lennon wrote. I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. See, that's his perception. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. And I'm going to kind of go even lower than that from the supervillain or hero, depending on how you view him, Homelander from the TV show The Boys. Low-hanging fruit this morning. I've not watched it, but I've heard that it's pretty spicy. Just so you know, I'm still holy, okay? No, <laughs> I've not watched that show. I've heard it's pretty... Yeah. Uh, he says, this is what he says, No God, the only man in the sky is me. So he's thinking that, yeah, that, that must be God, a, God, a dude in the sky. Melissa Coleman writes, God was something I did not understand the ways, uh, way kids who went to church did. They said that God was a man in the sky with white hair and a beard like Santa. This seems strange to me. And I thought of God, I imagined only the mist over the pond, a silver moon, a dark sky, scattering stars, a bird song. And so this idea that God is a, 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 a guy in the sky or a sky daddy, whatever, you know, it's a very cultural, like, understood idea. People understand this. And, in, and this author says here that it's even, she learned this in church, this conception of God. So human beings, we just have this tendency, want to make God like us. We want to bring him down to our level. You know, you see that with Zeus and the gods of Greek mythology and other gods. They're all physical men. You know, men, basic gods, a man with superpowers. It gets angry, gets jealous, just like us, lustful, like everyone else. They screw up and make mistakes of the Greek gods, except they're super, super powerful. Now, you may think that no one actually really believes this view anymore, but I was surprised to find out, and I'm very surprised to find out, you know there are still people who still believe in the uh, Greek mythology, kind of God, Zeus, and so on? There are still people that believe this. I was like, I thought nobody believed that anymore. Like, who could you, why could you believe that? But according to the two, 2007 statesman, in the article written, the ancient gods of Greece are now are, are not extinct, they write. Estimates of followers of ancient religions in Greece vary between 1% to 2% of the population, which translates somewhere to 100,000 to 200,000 followers. So you can guess to some people, Greek mythology isn't mythology. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, we, this is what we do. We want to just, people want to make God into a, a man, but more powerful, a little bit more wiser, uh, you know, knowledgeable, and so on and so forth. And uh, the reason why we do this is, as humans is because we naturally do this. We naturally assume God is like us. One of the common complaints I get as a pastor when people are going through a tough time, they say, if I am a child of God, then why am I going through this suffering right now? If I had a child, I wouldn't put him through this. So why is God putting me through this it's a very common problem we have 
The Bible records this problem as far back as we can even see. Historically, we see this as King David writes in Psalm 50, 21. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I reign at you and I set my accusations before you. The very first sin in the Bible, the original sin that got us into this mess of hurt, pain, and suffering, the very first sin that plunged the whole human race into sin this day, what was it? They took of the apple because they wanted to be like God. So again, it matters how you understand, how you view God. It matters how you live your life. And we're going to see here, it matters how you worship. And we're going to see this in Romans eleven thirty-two through 33. Paul says, For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and are inscrutable his ways. The big idea here is God's got a plan for everybody, even, even with the sin and failure that they bring, the, the mess-ups they bring. God still reveals his grace in people's brokenness, in their being captured by their own sin and failure. God reaches out and gives people tons of grace. He loves the world. He saves the world. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. And so God uses our failures, our sin, our shame, our mess ups to, to manifest his grace. So even if you've messed up and you feel like you've totally wrecked your life God still has a plan for you. Place your faith in Jesus and he says in Romans 828 he works it all out for good so yes he's consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all and so Paul hearing this beautiful news kind of just cries out in this worship he says oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how amazing this is and Paul is expressing a hymn here he's worshiping I love the way the New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it my, my wife's like, what an odd name for a very distinguished, like one of the best New Testament scholars, Douglas Moo. You know, it's not like you think of something more distinguished, but no, he is actually one of the best scholars. I know the name. Don't let the Moo confuse you. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear on that. So he says, and he's great. Best commentary in Romans I've ever read. He says, a particle O shows that the first line in, in Paul's hymn is an exclamation. It's, it's an emotional asserting of awe. So what, what Paul is doing here is he's realizing God's plan, realizing who God is, and he's just awestruck with the greatness and glory of God. I want to read this again. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's interesting here. The Greek word uh, for unsearchable is actually stronger and deeper than the English word unsearchable. The Bible was written in Koine Greek. Uh, that was what it was written. We can translate it. We know what it means. It's not a mysterious language. And according to the Freeburg lexicon, the Greek word here for unsearchable is impossible to search out. Impossible to search out. The Greek word is ironically almost as impossible to pronounce. <laughs> it's anorexio natos. Impossible to pronounce and impossible to search out. And this word uh, means that you can try and try and try and try to understand God and who he is. But at the end of the day, you can never fully understand or grasp God. You can never. There are things that will always remain a mystery to you and I. I hear people say this all the time. You know, well, when I go to heaven, I'll find out, Nate. 
When I go to heaven, it'll all be clear. All the horrible things that are happening to me right now, everything that's going on, it'll all just click. And, uh, you know, now I want to be clear. You will find out many things in heaven. You will learn a lot of stuff. You will learn a lot of things. But when you go to heaven, there are still going to be things for you that are impossible for you to search out. Because you will lack the cognitive capacity to wrap your mind around the mind of an infinite God. And that is because God is uh, impossible to fully comprehend. He is incomprehensible. He is impossible to fully understand. God will have thoughts that you will never understand, never grasp, because at the end of the day, God is infinite and we are finite. God is infinite. We are finite. And so what's really interesting is there's another word here. It says how, in the text here, how inscrutable are his ways. Now, you can also translate this to say how infinite are his ways. How infinite his ways. The, uh, the uh, Greek word, just like the other one, is also infinitely impossible to pronounce. <laughs> it's anexhiniastos. It's, it's a lot, you know, it's like, it's like a, that's like a word, you know, syllable salad right there, goodness gracious. And so, that, you know, these are big words, but uh, they, they communicate something very important, that God is infinite. He is not finite. I love the way the Freeburg lexicon breaks down this word. It means too much to be measured, infinite beyond one's ability to imagine. Infinite beyond one's ability to even imagine. So according to the Bible, God is on a totally different level than we are. He is the creature. Or we, Don't say that. No, don't do that. Nate. Just slipped into the... <laughs> We are the creature. He is the creator. That's what I meant to say. He is infinite. We are finite. And the, you know, the finite can never, ever become the infinite, ever. You cannot count or reach infinity. Buzz Lightyear is wrong. He cannot go to infinity and beyond. He cannot. You cannot reach infinity, ever, as a finite being. I love the way Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. People, uh, when they go through difficult times, they will get really upset, and they'll say, you know, God is just being unjust. He's being a dictator here. Uh, there, they, there could be no good reason in the world why God is putting me through this right now. There could be no good reason. And uh, I usually comfort people when they tell me that because usually people don't want to be like, you know, they're coming to you crying and they're talking about some horrible thing that's happened. And you don't want to be like, um, actually, <laughs> people don't want that. People don't want a theology lesson when they're like, oh, my just Well, as a matter of fact, you know, it's like, well, thank you, Spock. I appreciate no, people want a hug and a shoulder to cry on, but that does not stop my inner, inner Spock from thinking snarky thoughts because I'm sinful, right? That does not stop it. And so, you know, when they say, you know, God could, could never have a reason for why this happened to me or God's unjust. I said, well, how could you, in my head, I'm not saying this to them because I try to be a nice guy. So, you know, how, how could you ever know if an infinite being has a good reason for something or not? Doesn't that assume that you can know the mind of an infinite, infallible being? Are we ever in a, in a position to, to challenge or question an infinite being or accuse him of having no good reasons for thoughts that we could never comprehend or understand? Thoughts that, that can't even be explained to us because we lack the cognitive capacity to understand them? 
I mean, you look at the book of Job and the challenge, you know, and God's like, you know, Job, you're in utter darkness and knowledge. You can never surpass my knowledge when Job experiences something difficult. Just like a toddler, you know, like in, when they're in that stage, there's certain things you can never explain to them. You just got to say no. And that's, you know, the, the, because they lack the cognitive capacity. So we have to use simplified terms to explain things to little kids. He's an all-knowing, infinite being. He's far beyond the relationship. He, he surpasses the relationship of a toddler and an adult. He's infinite. We're finite. And so, yeah, never can fully comprehend his mind. And we're much like grasshoppers. Like a grasshopper can never understand my mind. Like he doesn't understand even like the most basic mathematics. It's a grasshopper. They lack the cognitive ability to do so. They do not have the ability. And what's really interesting is the Bible actually, the prophet Isaiah actually compares the mightiness of God and compares it to us and calls us grasshoppers, right? Um, it happens to be that grasshoppers are my most hated bug. I just, I don't like, they're kind of shady characters. They're unpredictable, right? They're jumping on you all the time. You're like walking. All of a sudden, a grasshopper's right. You're like, oh gosh, you know? They scare me, man, you know? I mean, I'd rather be stung at that point, you know? A startling is too traumatic for me, right? So I hate those things. They're awful creatures. And, you know, we're compared to grasshoppers, so I guess we're awful. So <laughs> this is not Project Self-Esteem. It's church, okay? Um, just, just saying. Isaiah 40, 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for a silver chain. See, this is dishonoring God that we would associate God, a holy and infinite personal being with an impersonal, impersonal, finite, inanimate object. He who is impoverished for an offering chooses wood and will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the very beginning? Have you not understand from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. It and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who will stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spread them out uh, like a tent and dwell in it? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness? Scarcely are the planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root on the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The point he's making is that there is nothing, there is nothing you can compare an infinite, transcendent, immaterial, all-powerful, all-knowing being to. He can never be a sky daddy or granddaddy on another planet in outer space because you can never compare anything about your father or grandfather to an infinitely holy, just being who transcends everything, who is the creator of time, space, matter, and energy, who surpasses it, who's beyond it. And this is why scripture teaches that God in his nature, it could never be a man because God is not a man. God and man are fundamentally different things, fundamentally different species, classes. God is actually above all classes. Numbers 23, 19 through 20. God is not a man that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, he has said it, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will it not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed and cannot revoke it. God is not a man. John uh, 4.24, Jesus himself as the Son of God says, God is spirit. That means he is non-physical. He is not extended in space. He is spiritual in his essence. He is not at a single space in time like we are extended in space right now. No, God, much like truth, moral laws, the laws of logic, consciousness, angels, and demons, is non-physical. It is not material. And if God were not a man, or sorry, if if God were a man, really, this is not good. If God were a man, then he would not be worthy of our worship because if 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 God were a man, you could wrap your puny mind around God. You could comprehend God. And a being that is like us, that is finite, sinful, fallen, cognitively limited, that if we, if we could grasp God, then he would not be worthy of our worship. He would not be. So then, what is a being that is worthy of our worship? What qualifies God to be that being which is worthy of our worship? And what is agreed upon by scripture and philosophers today is that what makes God worthy of our worship is in virtue of the fact that he is the greatest, the greatest conceivable being. What makes God want, want us to wor- worship him and to glorify him is that God is the they're, they're greatest. There's nothing that could even be greater than God. In fact, if there were something greater than God, then that would be God. God is the greatest. And that, that seems, I think that seems pretty intuitive. It seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It makes sense that, it doesn't make sense to worship something less than the greatest. That doesn't seem worthy of worship. It makes sense to worship the greatest. And let's be honest, no matter how great you think human beings are or men are, they are far from being the greatest conceivable being. There's no way that they are. You can think of someone way more powerful than Thor or Zeus. I mean, even in the Marvel Universe, there's people more powerful than, than Thor, right? I mean, a man with a limited finite body, you know, you can only carry too much, so much in your two hands. You can only hold so much. You're limited to one space as an embodied being. And I, I mean, no matter how great and special you think you are, you could have not existed. You could have failed to exist. Your parents could not have met and so on and so forth. But a greater being than this is a being who is not limited like humans are, but an unlimited being, a being who is infinite and who has to exist. This doesn't happen to exist, but must exist. We just happen to exist. Who grounds all of existence. That is a greater being and who holds all of reality together. And that is the God of the Bible. And that is what the Bible affirms about God over and over again. And that's one of the reasons why the God of the Bible is worthy of our worship. He is fundamentally different than us. Now, there's two things people bring up when I talk about all this. They say, well, wait a minute, Nate. Isn't uh, God our Father? You know, our Father, I mean, you do it in prayer. I mean, you know, isn't He our, our Father according to the Bible, according to the Scripture? The problem is, nobody takes uh, that to mean that God is like, you know, your literal father. I mean, my father plays golf, takes long naps in the middle of the day, and gets mad when the Dodgers lose. Am I supposed to think that God is just like my father? Like he's, you know, takes long naps and gets mad when the Dodgers? No, of course not. No one actually does that. No one transfers everything about the earthly father and just smack dabs it right on your heavenly father. No one does that. God is like a father because in the analogous sense, he cares for me. He loves me. And he corrects me. So to transfer everything we know about our earthly fathers and just put a smack dab onto our Father in heaven, 
is to kind of fall into the mockery of what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal, who thought the same thing about their God. 1 Kings 18, 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. He's being sarcastic. He's mocking them. Now, another thing people say to me is, well, you know, Nate, isn't, doesn't the Bible say we're made in, in God's image? Doesn't Scripture teach that? Well, I mean, a, an image of me, a picture of me, and me, those are two different things, right? And, you know, a picture stands still and it's plastic. I don't stand still and I'm plastic, right? I mean, we're, you know, it's, we're, I'm different than a picture of me or an image of me. An image, what it does is it reflects certain features of you, doesn't it? So an image is not the same exact thing. So someone's, oh, we're, like, we're just like God who's made his image. No, we're, we reflect certain features of God. That's what it means. And in fact, if you read the Bible in context, in Genesis 1, 26, that's exactly what God's getting at, is that we reflect certain features that we're supposed to bring dominion and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and have it over the fish of the sea and everything too. We're to have dominion over the creation like God has dominion over us. Look at it, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. The us there refers to the three persons of the Trinity. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the earth, or, or, or the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So yeah, let him let man have dominion as if God is has eternal dominion, has eternal kingdom. So that that's what this is referring to. When people draw the conclusion that God's like a, like a man, that's not what the Bible's getting at. People have taken these Bible passages and have ripped them out of context. Now people bring up, well, the Bible throughout various you know, points in you know, redemptive history, God does appear as a man. You know, the Old Testament, right? You know, wrestling, you know, all this kind of thing you, you get in Genesis. God appears as a man to Abraham, too. Well, you know, God also appears as a bush. You're going to think God's a bush? I mean, come on. I mean, God appears as a dove. Do you think God's a dove or a bird? No, of course not. God can manifest His glory and visually appear to us in a variety of different glorious ways to teach us lessons and, and teach us things about ourselves. Paul continues this line of thought in Romans eleven thirty four. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Paul is asking a rhetorical question and the Greek is clear. He's expecting a negative answer, meaning nobody can be His counselor. No one can tell Him what to do. No one can understand the mind. So, God, so uh, Paul is expecting this, this question to be answered in the Greek in negative here. So you could never give God a gift. You can never understand his mind. I mean, how could you give a gift and understand the mind of an infinite, transcendent being who transcends and is beyond uh, time, space, matter, and energy? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And so that means God was never a man at any point to where you could give God's nature a, a gift or give him counsel. Because the divine nature, who God is, and the human nature, they have completely different, fundamentally different characteristics. Romans eleven thirty six. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this statement may sound weird and strange to understand, but scholars have known what this means. It's very clear uh, if you understand what the point Paul's getting at here. What scholars say is that the, for from him are all things. That means that God is the absolute source of all things. God is the absolute creative source of all things. Every physical thing that exists, everything that exists, God created. Everything besides God, you know, God created, right? 
And so that's why God could not be a guy in the sky, because God created the guys in all the skies. He, he could never do that. So God created everything that you see around you, everything that exists created from God. What is amazing is that that is said also of the Lord Jesus himself in 1 John, or sorry, John 1, 3. All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. So Jesus is said to be the source of all things. The next thing Paul mentions here is through him are all things. Through him are all things. It's also agreed upon by scholars that this phrase means that God sustains everything that has existed or will ever exist. God sustains it. The heartbeat, the pulse, whatever you have going on, the, the good or bad food you ate this morning, that is all being causally sustained by God right now. Every particle in your body is being held together by the God Almighty. And again, this is also said of Jesus Christ himself. Interestingly, in Colossians 1.17, it says, And he is before all things, meaning he has preeminence, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. The Greek perfect tense is here, which means that it's a continuous result. God is continually holding all your neurons in your brain, holding your soul together, everything. And the last phrase that Paul utters here in this, in this amazing teaching, this rich teaching on God, is to him are all things. To him are all things. Also agreed upon by scholars is that this, this means here that, uh, that everything is for the purpose and glory of God. God alone. That's where we get the sola de la gloria, is from the glory of God alone. The ultimate thing in reality, everything is ultimately reflects the glory of God, is working towards the glory of God. And this is also said of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we are to live for Christ and glorify Christ. Second Peter 3, 18, but, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Apostle Paul says at the end of his life, he says when he's in prison, for me uh, to live is Christ. He's living for Jesus, but to die is gain because he gets to be with Jesus. We live to glorify Christ. And this proves that Jesus is God. Jesus is the, is the one person of the eternal God and the divine nature. And of course, there's the Father and the Holy Spirit who also reside in the one nature of God. People will often say to me, Nate, but isn't Jesus a man? I mean, doesn't that contradict everything you said this entire sermon? Isn't Jesus a man? How does, so doesn't that prove that God is a man? Well, no, it does not prove that. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus did not have a physical body of flesh and bone for all eternity. He did not have it. Jesus, for all eternity, before creation even occurred, you know, if you could even talk that way before, I guess logically before, Jesus was a necessary, infinite, spiritual, transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing being for all eternity. That's who Jesus was. And what happened is this eternal, transcendent God added on, took on a human body and soul. And when he did this, he was still God. It's not as if when Jesus added on a human nature, like his, his divinity was eradicated. No, he merely added on and he re remained as God so that when the Roman soldiers were nailing the, the, the nails in his hand at the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's on the cross. He was in his divine nature sustaining that cruel torture he endured. 
And so, yes, he is God that added on humanity to, to, to Jesus so that he could suffer and bleed because he loves us. And it is not as if Jesus, like, just, like, everything's erased. No, he, no Jesus maintains his godhood. So man can never be God, but God chooses to take on a human nature while remaining God in the person of Christ. And this gets us to the heart of biblical Christianity. Christianity is not about climbing a ladder, hiking a mountain, hiking Mount Everest, you know, through moral efforts so that we can become God. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about God coming down to our level in the dirt in the filth, in our pain, in our tears, in our suffering, so that we can have a relationship with Him, so we can come to know God. That's what the heart of Christianity is about. And we see humans want to bring God down to our level, and when we do that, He's no longer worthy of our worship. He is no longer the greatest being. People want a God they can comprehend, but a God you can comprehend with your puny mind is not worth worshiping. Jesus is worth worshiping because you can never comprehend his greatness. We can never go up to God through our manhood and our moral efforts, but this incomprehensibly beautiful, infinite being came down to us. You know, God could have chosen not to suffer and die for us. He could have chosen not to do that. But you see, what God chose to do is adding on a human nature, he came down to the lowest of lows. I mean, to be born in a, in a filthy animal trough and to suffer and shame, suffer more than any of us ever have because he is infinitely amazing and loving. He loves you that much. See, the issue is the higher you put God up, the greatest you make him, the higher you view God, the more amazing and tremendous and just mind-blowing the sacrifice of Jesus is for you. Because he went to the highest of highs, Jesus says, and he went to the lowest of lows. To suffer in ways we will never even imagine for all eternity. And so we realize how high and exalted Jesus is. Then we realize how much he really humbled himself and how much he loves you. And you realize how deep and amazing that is. And what that does is it, it brings you to your knees. It brings you to a place of worship and awe and adoration that uh, this God, this amazing being that we could never understand that's so beyond us that he would come and die for us, die for our sins. You see, doctrine and truth in the Bible isn't supposed to make us like a cold spot, just intellectual manner kind of thing. No, rather, doctrine and truth is meant to transform us and bring us into deeper joy and worship of Jesus Christ. So, for example, just one example. You know, God knows all things. You can say, okay, God knows all true propositions. You know, beep, beep, beep. You'd be all intellectual about it. Yeah, he knows everything that's true. We can, we can philosophize about it. But that should lead us to worship. The fact that God knows everything means that God knows everything about you. Every evil thought and horrible thought you've ever had, God knows about that. And what's amazing is that he still loves you. It's just a mind-blowing when you think about, yeah, he's all-knowing, but guess what? He knows everything about you, and he still loves you. You are fully known and fully loved by God. I love the way R.C. Sproul puts it. To know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. 
You know, there is, there is nothing surprising about one sinful human being wanting to have a relationship with another sinful human being. I mean, even if they're really powerful, like you see some of these celebrities, men and women, they get married to somebody who's like a nobody in Hollywood, marry regular people. It's not surprising that sinners want to have relationships with their sinners. But to imagine that an infinite being wants a relationship with a fallen, evil, finite human being, that is extraordinary. That leads to just the deepest worship. And he doesn't just want a relationship with you, but he wants to have the deepest relationship with you. He wants to know, he wants you to know him and love him more than anything else. And he wants to spend all eternity with you. A being who sustains your every breath, who created every star in the sky, who stretches out the very fabric of the universe, loves you enough that he came down in the person of Christ to suffer for your sins so that he can justly love you forever and ever and never stop loving you. And if you trust in Christ this morning, this incomprehensible God, you will have an incomprehensible, he will have this incomprehensible, unconditional love for you that will never end and it will go on and on and on for all eternity and when you realize that you trust in him this will lead you to the deepest place of worship and awe as Paul ends here in Romans 11 to him be glory forever amen let's pray